Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. Today we've got back on the show, yet again, a lit manager and producer who's worked at William Morris, UTA, and the Hollywood gang at Warner's. He's been on the show a half a dozen times or so, so if you haven't listened to those earlier podcasts, they're really great, so you should definitely check them out. You can find them on our website, scriptsandscribes.com. He is Mr. Scott Carr. Thanks for coming back on, Scott. Happy to be here. Thanks, Kevin. First off, I wanted to touch base on uh, a big story kind of going around the WGA-ATA conflict of interest issue being a lit rep who reps multiple WGA clients, but also you deal a lot with the agencies, a lot of agents. So I just kind of wanted to get your take on it in terms of what your just initial thoughts are and how it's affecting you as a, as a lit manager and your clients. Of course, yeah. Um, well, I think it's an important fight. I actually really believe that... Um, the rationality of what the Writers Guild is asking for makes perfect sense to me. Um, I think it's a challenging issue. I think there's a lot of um, money on the line, obviously, and there's some bragging rights on the line, and there's even ego in the space, I think, on both sides to a degree. But ultimately, I think, like any negotiation where you're this far apart, we're at a place where both sides have now decided that they kind of want to see how it plays out in this state of separation. Um, and I think over time, like anything, it be a work stoppage or something of this case, the industry is going to start to feel um, the shifting dynamics of what this means on how we do business. And they'll eventually come to the place where they are going to have to see where they can reach a middle ground if that's possible. I think there's a lot of rhetoric out there that's suggesting there's no, there's no, there's no way in which they can bridge some of their con their concerns. But you know, I'm hopeful that there is a way in which they can skin that cat. Um, but I think the the bottom line is for now is that um, the writers have requests that are not being honored by their agency representatives. So they've taken a position and a stand. And now as a manager, um, my role is to step up and do anything and everything that I can to make sure that my clients are best represented. I have been in some ways bestowed added responsibility and authority by the guild. I know there's a lot of rhetoric and ambiguity about there about what the legalities of that are. Um, so we're all kind of watching that very carefully and closely as we navigate. But each day you just have to go to work and just make sure that your clients are feeling like they're being serviced and they're being heard. Um, and yes, I have, I come from the agency system. I've been around it. I have a lot of friends and colleagues that work at the agencies and you know, it, it's a, it's a tricky subject to talk about because there is kind of polarizing points of view, be it the creative side and the business side of it all. Um, so I try, frankly, not to get too mired in all of that and just focus on what needs to be done for the clients in the absence of their agents and just hope that things actually smooth out and return to a state of normalcy with a shift in the paradigm in which the business has been kind of exploiting and leveraging the these clients to get more money 
for the agencies, which I think if, if, um, if, if that were to shift in a way in which the money could be more evenly dispersed onto the creative side, or, it, or if it could just realign the interests of the agents with their, with their clients in a, in a financially incentivizing way, then I think that would only do good for the representation business in general. Um, but I think that the demonization of the agencies and the, um, or the WGA, be it in the press or I think all of that is what's turned this into a little bit more of a minefield where people really feel uncomfortable talking about it or even thinking about it because anything that's going to have such a, so much at stake is going to lead to a lot of high emotions and so much money on the line is going to lead to a lot of, um, people digging in on their positions and really willing to fight it out and see, you know, if, if the attrition rate is kind of what has someone win or how much money they can spend to protect their position could have someone win. Um, it's, uh, it hasn't been boring and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Hollywood loves drama. Um, so yeah, so for me, now that it's been a couple weeks into this mass exodus of writers leaving their agents, um, I think we're kind of on the other side of like the more subjective emotional elements of that. And now we're just trying to acclimate to the new way in which we do business um, and represent the client. And, you know, with each week, I think it's just about keeping eye on the prize with the client while paying attention to what's happening out there and, ho and hoping for a resolution. Mm -hmm. And we were talking a little before we came on about like how your responsibilities as a rep has sort of expanded. Mm -hmm. Obviously the relationship between an agent, a manager and a client, it's like a three pronged attack when you're going into staffing season, especially, mm -hmm. but without the agent, it becomes much more onus on the writer client themselves and you as their sole rep, generally speaking. So what does that mean for clients out there who are trying to get staffed this season? Um, well, the process, you know, historically has always been like staffing is all about gathering information and finding out what the needs are out there, what shows are getting picked up, what levels are being hired. Um, and, and, and there can be a lot of wasted effort if you aren't really clear on what the information is. Um, and the agencies are always really great at um, making sure that they that they filtered all that information into very um, accurate grids so that we could have a strong sense of you know what was available and have a, a, a tactical approach on how to try to position a client for a job and now with the writers no longer being represented by the agencies at least for myself or like some of the larger management companies I do maybe even kind of function like agencies with some of those coordinators and and grids in place and for me like you know like anyone who's spent many years building up relationships with all of these people in television and whatnot. It's just about making calls and sending out emails and just getting on a, a tracking board with other managers, just like try, everybody's trying to help everybody out to get that information into a more um, accurate and succinct format and then getting a strong sense of what the needs are and then just submitting clients for it. Um, Cause you know, the, they need writers and there's, there's, methods that are being put in place to a degree by the writer's guild to help that. But ultimately it, it really just comes down to a representative leveraging their relationship 
to have a client taken as seriously as possible in a competitive landscape. And, you know, that becomes my role in that. So it just, it's just time and information and effort and uh, trying to keep up with the speed of staffing because rooms can open and close very quickly because right. uh, a lot of people have people in mind, showrunners that want to work with people they've worked with in the past people that the producers and the executives in the studio and the network have met with in the past. Um, and if you're trying to bring in someone who really doesn't have a pedigree yet, then, and you're, and you're starting now, it just means you have to catch them at the right moment, follow up on that read, hope you get traction and, um, and just be aggressive about making sure you can try to get the meetings in in time and the reads in in time. Um, and you know, that's mainly for network, which is obviously ramping up now and full throttle. And then cable and streaming is kind of the whole year round, which, right. but when, when those shows come up as well, it is a mad dash to get someone in there. Um, so it's about just staying on top of the information and putting in the work. Right. Someone asked me if now is possibly the best time or the worst time to query a manager or an agent, especially because agents may not have clients now. Is it a good time to query or not a good time to query agents? Manage I wouldn't really discourage anyone out there who feels they're ready looking for a representative to not make attempts during this time. I think is managers, or at least myself, I know I become increasingly busy with my, with my current clients and their needs being kind of their sole representative right now, which just means I have less bandwidth to be considering new people. Um, and I'm not sure about it. Like agencies usually are like, if you're, if you're going in through a relationship then I think agents would still consider a budding writer and not be too concerned right now with the WGA thing. Cause I think the belief is, is it will at some point resolve itself. Right. We don't know when, but I don't think the agencies are never going to represent writers again, <laughs> um, or guild writers. So I think there is, and it takes so long to seriously consider someone and to represent them and to get their material ready for the market and to monetize it. You know, I think it's such a long tail that you have, that you would still be starting at this point. It's just about whether or not people are paying attention to that, which I think is going to be individual, individualized just based on someone's book of business and how they're going about it right now. Um, so for writers out there looking for representation, I think you're mindful of the state of the industry so that, you know, you're, the feedback you're getting is something that you can kind of process on how you navigate it. But for the most part, you still want to do everything you can to try to seek representation because it is a, a necessary first step. How do you see this sort of playing out? I've heard thing, people saying it could take months to, to, for them to figure out till somebody blinks and they sort of are forced to come together. But how do you see it playing out between the WJ and ATA? Oh God, there's a few permutations that could take on. Now with the with the with the lawsuits being filed, it feels like that will need to run its course to a degree because a lawsuit is obviously a very antagonistic process where they're blaming each other for breaking the law, and you know I think that's going to strain the negotiations um, for the time being as as they kind of work through that process. Um, I do think as professional negotiators with writers that are no longer represented by the agencies and agencies that are no longer representing the writers, they have a responsibility to get back to the bargaining table. And I think they feel that responsibility, but tactically 
the timing of that is going to be very important because it's like a game of chicken. Who's going to flinch first and step up? But I think we're in that that period right now where they're trying to just feel out, you know, which side feels most vulnerable under these circumstances. And, you know, once I, I do believe once they get back into the room and start having the conversations on the heels of whatever this leads to, you know, that, that progress could be relatively quick because there's, there's, it's been very clear what the issues are and, um, but when they get there, I think, I don't anticipating it being, I think it's something measured in months personally. Um, um, but we're all hopeful that maybe, maybe it won't take that long. I don't think anybody out there on either side or anyone caught in the middle is happy about this. Um, I think the relationship when properly aligned between an agent, a manager, their attorney, the guild, and the industry as a whole, I think it's, uh, I think it's all essential to doing business well. Um, and when you move a major piece of that, I think it, um, it does start to, um, kind of shutter the foundation and, you know, I'd rather going back to having a strong foundation of representatives with, you know, maybe more honorable intentions across the board. Now, you speak to a lot of other managers because the managerial relationships between managers is generally more congenial than between agents and agencies, per se. What's the general feeling, without, again, getting into specifics, what's the general feeling about, because the, the, the ATA, the Association of Talent Agents, is, is threatening lawsuits against managers and, and attorneys who sort of represent clients, um, even if authorized by the Writers Guild because they're not state-licensed agents per se, but yet the practice has been done for a long time. There are plenty of, of writers who don't have agents that are represented solely by an attorney or an attorney and a manager who procure work and are, it seems legal in, in that sense and have been doing it for years. What is sort of the general feeling uh, amongst the managers you've spoken to and the attorneys you've spoken to about that whole side coming from the ATA, the threat of litigation potentially? You know, I think right now everyone's still very much trying to get to the bottom of the legalities of it. Like there, I, I think for many, many years, because no one was really threatening lawsuits against anyone, it was just business as usual. Right. And, you know, anybody could kind of do anything that was in the best interest of making their client and themselves money. Um, um, but now that there's a risk of you know, an entity feeling like they're being made irrelevant. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it does make sense that they're having to kind of protect their value and make these kinds of threats. And I guess being someone that's kind of on the other end of that threat per se, um, I certainly don't want to put myself in a position where, you know, I'm jeopardizing my business, but I have, I think we're all in the same boat. The Writers Guild is, you know, sent out a lot of information to us about about their position and their willingness to protect us financially and otherwise. Um, the real sticky situation is in the definition of procurement of employment. Um, at what point does it become measurable? Um, because sometimes, like, writers and clients have got 
enough momentum that people want to work with them. And we're here to like manage and facilitate that conversation and those relationships. And, but now that there's no agent in there, does that mean that we can't do that? Um, and my opinion on that is that it is, is that it is possible to be still doing my managerial responsibilities without taking on the role of, of an agent. Um, and um, still being able to honor that relationship with the clients have gotten to a point where business can kind of flow with greater efficiency. It's really kind of more in the kicking off a career gotcha. where someone really doesn't have any traction out there. Because um, generally a manager will do, if the manager discovers the client, they'll do a bunch of legwork with them, getting their material up running, which isn't procurement of any kind. It's just making sure their material is ready for the market, then get them an agent. And then along with the agent, then we can go out and figure out the strategy on how to sell it or to get them more work. Um, so I think that is the element of it where it gets a little bit tricky. And I currently am not in any position right now where I'm actually approaching work from that angle. So, but at some point in the near future, I will be. So, um, you know, I think, I think it's gathering information right now. And if I reach the precipice of that cliff, I have to make sure there's a bridge that's going to service the client while also just protecting the, and honoring the dynamics of the relationship. Um, so if, and when I get there, decisions will have to be made. And in the meantime, it's about just, um, just making sure that everything that like I feel in my ethical and moral compass is aligned with my client's needs and the, the, the role and the responsibility that I fill by definition. Mm -hmm. And in your conversations with attorneys, your client's attorneys and attorneys that you're, you know, is that sort of the consensus so far? Although, again, attorneys don't tend to procure work. They tend to negotiate deals after the work is agreed upon. Yes. Um, so does that seem to be sort of the consensus? Is business as usual? Yeah, it's only been a couple of weeks, so I think people are, 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 are still sifting through the information. But I, I, I feel like, you know, the, the, I would be hard-pressed to see an attorney refuse to negotiate on a client's behalf when that client is in a position to make money and with us lose it if they didn't do their job. Right. Um, so whether or not that's happening, you know, remains to be seen. But, you know, I personally would be surprised if attorneys were to refuse that under these circumstances and say that they need to gather more information in perpetuity. Right. Because uh, these deals, like, you know, these offers come and they need to be addressed and they can't just be, can't just put a pin in it for for, you know, that long. Um, yeah. So I think, I think, I think deals are being negotiated. Right. <laughs> there was a small debate going on, um, on Twitter between writers and showrunners and, um, uh, between one space after a period or two. And most people said that they prefer one space after a period a few went so far as to saying having two spaces after a period 
kind of drove them nuts when they were reading a script. Like it really got under their skin. Basically, I want to ask you, how uh, into formatting do you get when reading a script? Like if, if scripts are not properly formatted, how much is that a turnoff for you? And I'm not talking about like everything being indented improperly or um, the margins being way, way off. But I mean, like one space after a period or two. Yeah, I think that's fairly pedantic personally. Like I think actually grammatically it is supposed to be two period, two spaces after a period. I think in a script, for me, it's all about like what makes it a smooth read um, what makes it easier on the eyes? You know, white space is always nice. So I don't think I would have a problem with a extra space, you know, after a period. Um, when it comes to just overall formatting, like there are kind of the staples that people have to adhere to for this, the, the reality of how that project will eventually be budgeted in a shooting script and whatnot, which goes through a conversion. But in a spec script, I think they just, you know, stick with like, you know, the margins and all of that. But you can be creative on how you tell your story with your words. Like I, I invite writers to kind of go against the grain a bit as long as it serves a purpose. Like I've seen scripts where they might write a line and then the next line is several tabs indented. And the next line is even more tabs oh, indented to, to punctuate kind of like that action. Mm -hmm. And I've seen scenarios where they're trying to create a dramatic pause or tension. So there might be like a dot, a dot, a dot, a dot, and then the next line. So like we know that there was some a space here that right. we're kind of in it. So I, I think it's as a storyteller, you can use formatting in a creative way to, to engage your reader more. So just like a filmmaker would in telling a story on the screen. Um, as long as it seems deliberate and serves a purpose, then I think it's, it will be for the most part welcomed. If it just seems like it's, um, someone who just doesn't know proper formatting or doesn't know how to spell or doesn't spell right. check or doesn't use their grammar and users grammar incorrectly, I think that stuff will eventually bother me because it will, I'll, I'll notice it and that will pull me out of the experience of the story that they're investing me in be like watching a film and seeing a jump cut or something. It's just an editing error. That's a formatting error. And that's a similar experience for a reader. So I think writers do have to be sedulous about making sure that those elements of their formatting are pitch perfect and then they can be creative with the rest. Someone else asked, uh, is it wise to target a based on their current clients? Uh, for example, if, they're an action writer. Should they look for a rep that has uh, a lot of action writer clients, you know, scripts that they've sold? And obviously the, the rep is interested in that uh, genre, probably is an affinity for it. Um, but at the same time, they could have a ton of action clients already, and maybe they're looking for a horror writer or something. Uh, what, what's your take on that? I think um, to be a little bit more tactical about who you're targeting when you're seeking out representation, assuming you're not going through referrals and you're kind of having to do your own recon about someone. I think it is good to try to align with a representative who has suggested they like your sensibility because at the end of the day, taste matters and we're creative people and we're going to want to read material that appeals to our, our sensibility. So I think we're just going to enjoy something more if it's the kind of story that we like to traditionally, um, 
read or go and see. Um, I think also as representatives, though, at least for me, like I, I want to have a prolific business. I want to make sure that I have um, a, a broad stable of clients that are doing different kinds, telling different kinds of stories so that we can get, I can get more stories out there and have a broader book of business. So I really look for like craft, quality of craft and storytelling acumen and distinctive voices. Um, the kind of story they're trying to tell within certain genres, um, I'm fairly open to. Like there may be ones that I'm more keen on, like certain genres or sci-fi or character facing action or true stories or whatnot. But if someone wants to, I don't do a lot in animation, but if someone had a really great idea for an animated series or, an, or, or a great animated spec that I thought showed their voice in that, then there's certainly opportunities that can be presented as a result of that if the writing is there. So, you know, I think it's good to, to target that, but you don't have to feel limited to that, you know, because you just never know. Um, often when you're starting out, you have to cast a fairly wide net anyway. So, you know, don't limit yourself too much, um, but still try to individualize who you're targeting rather than sending out kind of like a mass blanket query or something like that, like personalize it and try to find an appeal to their taste or research that you've done on them. So you can spend a little time just suggesting that and why you approach them, why them. Right. Um, you know, you get out what you put in this world. So if you put more effort into seeking, seeking out someone, you might have a better chance at actually catching their attention. Right. We were talking actually a little bit earlier, but how do you handle clients who, or, or writers who may sort of lack that confidence in themselves um, and their work? For, you know, obviously, they're, you believe in them as writers, or you wouldn't have signed them. Um, so obviously, they have a strong writing ability, but like, how do you get them to feel that way? So it doesn't like, so they have a positive sort of outward appearance when it comes to meetings and other things as well. It's just a belief in themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, in, usually over the course of a, of a relationship with a client, as they find their sea legs and develop their own relationships and get some points on the board, that confidence starts to solidify more so as by virtue of results. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, that's not false bravado or anything or just um, self-love and from the outset. Um, but if someone were to be an extremely talented, creative person, but I felt in the beginning that maybe there were elements of their personality where they were self-deprecating or they weren't fully confident or they got, you know, more n nervous in a way that might not serve them um, when they're out there, you know, I find it's, I prefer to lean into strengths in the beginning in all frankness. If I started working with them, it was for reasons. And rather than take a hard look at kind of the stuff that's not working, I'd rather focus on what is and, and really lean hard into that. They'll kind of bolster how someone feels about their material because that is what they're doing well and, and maybe better than most. And, you know, to affirm that, you know, through acknowledgement and, you know, I'm, I'm the type of person that, like, anything I ever say I like to believe is genuine. I'm not very good at being a sycophant. I'm not very good at bullshitting, right. um, which means I think that the compliments land better when they happen because they know they're real. Um, 
And if there is criticism or elements that have to be addressed, then just doing that in the right frame of mind and with the right context and making sure that I'm getting a good read on where someone is at with their mood and all of these, you know, behavioral elements that are important in just a human, a human context. And then I think from the, when um, someone is going out there into the market with a piece of material and meeting people, if I were to sense that maybe they have to develop a, a real, like a stronger sense of self and confidence, then I would put them in rooms with people I think will align with their personalities and kind of maybe safer spaces because it's a meeting that I think I can really kind of leverage the quality of my relationship with that person to make sure that the writer isn't going into what feels like a, um, a sticky situation or like someone that's going to be really intensive um, or shut down or neutral about the whole thing. I think they're going to like their material and it's going to be a really warm room so there can be, so you can set the right tone for how they go out there into the market mm -hmm. and then kind of just steadily start to kind of bridge that with maybe some of the more consequential meetings or, or, or the more competitive ones. Um, Cause you just want someone to through experience and through the doing to build up the, a, a sincere sense of confidence, which I think only comes from putting yourself out there into a situation that does have some risk. Um, but it doesn't have to be, like the highest level of risk from the outset. Right. There's a way in which it can be scaled and a representative can really make sure the material and the client is put out there in a way in which they can grow within that space. Right. So try to be cognizant of that and tactically create that type of trajectory for a client if that were to be kind of the personality I was dealing with. That's smart. There's a lot of thought behind that. Well, this one I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, another listener had asked if there were any drawbacks to signing with a manager who operates solo or at a small management company. How do you know if a smaller management company has the necessary contacts and resources to get a client read and out there? Well, they certainly can look at the, that manager's book of business sure. and see if those clients are being effective. If they're getting hired or getting produced credits and making money, then something's working. Right. You know, that, mm -hmm. you know, meet someone you like, you know, I, I have an independent management business and it's entirely by choice because I just feel like the dynamics of management with a client, I want to make them as intimate and personalized as possible. And I really, I feel like the best way I can allocate my time to that is to not have responsibilities beyond just my individual clients, which is just inevitable when you're working in a, a business with other partners and employees and whatnot. Um, so... So I, I think it's a, a great business model for management because I can also work with, for instance, like, you know, agencies that are, have more machinery and, you know, those resources that people are claiming are, are, are vital. And I can then have a client have the best of both worlds and have their cake and get too with the more personalized representation of a manager, but then also the, the bigger machinery of the agency. Um, I think if someone is apprehensive about that, then it's, uh, they just do their research. And then if they were to get interest from someone with that business model, then they just ask those questions, mm -hmm. you know, and if they don't have a lot of interest out there and that, that, 
younger manager or that more independent manager is excited about them and passionate about them and gets them. I think that's what's really very important and hard to come by, you know, and if, if they're completely ineffectual, then that's something I think they could probably have figured out before getting into a relationship with them. Um, and not put a stigmatism on it just because they're working independently. That's often can be very much a choice and there's a lot of strategy involved in how they feel they can maneuver without more like the corporate elements that can maybe sometimes even stifle progress and representation. Mm -hmm. I've seen it happen before. Um, so I think, and if they want to be, if they feel they need a bigger place, for instance, then they get that interest, then they should be asking some of those questions as well with them and what their expectations are and how their business runs. Like it's a, it's a, it's a very important relationship. It's like a marriage. It should be vetted. It should, it, there should be some courting involved. There should be conversations and questions and everything before you put a ring on the finger. Sure. Um, so you do your due diligence beforehand and then you ask your questions when you're getting into the relationships and you just ask yourself if you, if this feels right, right. you know, you're not going to know until you're kind of in it. There's, there's an, in, there's an intuitive element to it once that information is gathered. Right. Right. My thought has always been, you want your manager to be your biggest advocate, regardless of the size of the management company, regardless of, of, you know, whatever, if they can get you in a room, which, you know, obviously, you know, if they have clients at big agencies, if they have clients that have sold stuff, they can get you read you want to find the biggest advocate, the person you feel the most connection to, it doesn't matter otherwise. But when it comes to an agency, uh, having a bigger agency, although with all this conflict of interest issues with the packaging and all that, may change, but probably not. Getting an agent, ideally, who believes in you, but within the biggest sort of, of structure you can find because they have more information, more clients. But it doesn't, to me, it doesn't matter as much on the management level. It, the relationship is the most important thing. And if it doesn't work out with your agent, your manager can help you find a different agent. But your agent will very rarely help you find another manager and it's, it's, that's not usually the way it works. Yes, I, I, I strongly agree with that. I believe um, that uh, I want each, for me, I want each client to kind of feel like they're my only client. They know they're not. Sure. But they don't, they feel like when they're that I'm out there hustling for them. And then when I'm speaking with them or working on their behalf, they know that I'm present and I'm familiar with everything that's going on. Like they can just tell that it's kind of top of mind and tip of tongue. And um, I think that's only frankly manageable with a very specific book of business. I, I think if you get into the volume business, which does start to happen with larger companies, then it's harder to just maintain that level of attention and intimacy and, and, and keeping everything, you know, so cleanly compartmentalized in your brain that you can do anything at any time for any given client. Um, so, you know, I think the, the, the dynamic of that relationship is one that has to be built in a very personalized way. And then, you know, of course that person needs to be effective and have relationships and good taste and do everything thereafter. But, if you, if you don't really feel you can talk to that person about anything and everything and don't feel like, like the trust is there and that you can express vulnerabilities and you can be challenged by that person, which I think is just a function of time and, and feeling comfortable with that person. Um, 
So I think that's an important aspect of representation, especially management. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you were in Atlanta recently, um, invited by ScreenCraft to do for the, was it the Atlanta Film Festival? It was, yeah. They have a summit out there. Um, and so I'm assuming you spoke about the industry and, and probably representation and things like that. What are some of the, the, the things that you had discussed that you found most helpful to you know, newer or aspiring writers out there? Well, a lot of people that attend stuff like that, writers, they, they, you know, they go there because they, they've been writing. They believe in themselves. Some people are very – maybe are just nascent in the process. They're trying to gather information. But for the most part, people are there because they've been writing. They have material that they want to get read, and they feel they're ready. So they go there for access. And what I found while I was out there was trying to educate and inform writers on how to garner access. That, you know, just because you've written a script and you've paid a fee to come to a summit and you're sitting across from a representative doesn't entitle you to consideration sure. for representation. Um, but I was able to kind of cut through a lot of what I thought they felt was effective methods of getting representation and realizing that they aren't and just give them some real concise effective manners um, um, in which they could go about it. Um, and there was an opportunity to sit down with people in a, you know, a group, a small group setting and actually address one-on-one -on -one questions and give more thorough and specialized answers. Um, so, so that was something I thought that was hopefully very helpful for the writers that went out there if they weren't getting their scripts read on the spot or thereafter, at least maybe they walked away with information on what they, they can be doing if they feel they have their material ready to go. Right. You know, and I think, you know, if, if, if writers were trying to look at the process of getting a representative and getting into the movie or TV industry, it'd be no different than the process of trying to become, um, a professional athlete. Sure. You know, if you're a football player, you don't just feel like you're entitled to the NFL because you like the game or because you've been playing in your backyard. Right. You have to go through a, a series of trainings, you know, and games and doing a bunch of work before you'll even feel like you have an opportunity to be taken seriously by the NFL. Right. And Hollywood is the NFL and representatives are their scouts. Right. You know, so we're going to be looking, we are gatekeepers but we even have our own gatekeepers, like like you said, con consultations and contests yeah. and fellowships and and getting referrals. But I think, yeah, if, if any writers out there that hasn't really gone beyond themselves or some very you know unqualified relationships with their reads, then they're just going down on a process doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Right. If, using my analogy, for instance. Right. Sure, they can get lucky. They could be brilliant. And I've been involved in situations like that where someone has not gone through all the proper channels and managed to, to pull it off. But I think, I think that's an outlier. I think that's an anomaly. And I think if you really want to protect yourself and go through a process that's going to really build you up and, and build up that patience and that 
persistence that I think is necessary to, if you really, really are in this to win this, um, you have to face, you have to face the process head on and, and, um, not be afraid of the time and the effort and, you know, the, the strategic nature in which you go about it. Right. Because once you're in, we're going to be doing all that. It's going to take time. It's going to take patience. It's going to take strategy, you know, so it's best to kind of get used to that right. and develop a skill set for that. Well, I think we even did, talked about it before, the movie Invincible with Mark Wahlberg, where uh, Mark Wahlberg, I don't remember the name of the actual player. He plays uh, a, a football player who, I guess the Philadelphia Eagles are so bad that they open up the tryouts, like to the general public, which obviously is not done in the NFL level anymore. But I think Dick Vermeil was the coach at the time. It's based on a true story. And, the, you know, there were, you know, these overweight guys wearing Superman capes. I mean, it's just like this ragtag group of just random people who genuinely think that they have a shot at making the Philadelphia Eagles football team. Yeah, it's like and, the presidential election these days. <laughs> Again, we're talking about professionals. And it's easy to look at it from the sidelines and say... I could do that when you're not actually doing it. That's just my take yeah, on it. Yeah, and like you know, you'd mentioned some of these touch points along the way, be it like the contest or whatever. Like right. You can submit them. They're fairly inexpensive sure. because there's a volume of them. And there's fellowships, and a lot and of them are free. A lot of them are free, but like, you know, with the contest, for instance, like, we're only really going to care about the winners, sure. for instance, because like, Chances are anything that didn't win isn't good enough or maybe a little too developmental for our taste at that time. And obviously that could vary based on someone's business model. But for the most part, we want people that are ready. So if you put it into a contest and you don't win, then that script's possibly not ready. Yes, it's just, you know, some random judge's opinion, but if it's a good contest with People that are professionals reading those scripts and it is graded on the curve. And yes, they can only pick one winner or a handful of finalists or whatever. Um, but chances are like there wasn't 20 of them that were amazing and they had to pick one winner or five finalists. Like they, sometimes they're hard pressed to assign winners by our standards. And I've passed on material that has literally won that stuff because someone has to win. So I think if you're not really get coming to the top of of all of that, then your material may not be ready to make money doing it yet. And it's very competitive in that sense. But I do believe that great material, if you put it out there diligently, will rise to the top. Because right. we are accessible and there is ways in which your material can get read and then eventually get into the hands of someone that can refer it to someone that can do something with it, if not that person themselves. Right. So truly great material is going to find its way into this industry. Right. I was just going to add that you, reps, want to find great material. You're not avoiding it. If anything, you are hungering for that material. You, you want these writers' scripts and you want them to be great. 100%. Like we spend many, many, many years developing all these relationships that we want to service and bring opportunities to for our clients and for the people that we've gotten to know on the other side of the fence. So, so yes, the, the, the only thing that we're missing in that case, it would be great material if we don't have anything new. Um, so that's extremely exciting to me when I have a, 
new voice and a piece of material I'm excited about. Like now finally I can activate all of those relationships that I have. I, I have organic reasons to call up these people and, and they're excited to read something because they're very often looking for new voices and new material because there's so many ways out there in which you can get stories told. Um, and once a story is told, there's a need for another story because people don't want to keep watching the same thing over and over again. So, so yes, like great stories are, are, are the lifeblood of why we do our jobs. And you had mentioned that if you submit to a contest and, and you don't win, it's not good enough. But you also had mentioned that it is based on taste as well. So what I tend to say, if you submit to multiple contests, and you don't win one, that, you know, because during the semifinal process, somebody could get cut that, that may just not be the right taste. Maybe they didn't it, like specifics of this particular script, even though the writer's really good. But in Nickel, it doesn't get to the finals or doesn't win. But maybe they win Austin or they win, you know, some other prominent. But if you enter five, six contests and you don't become a finalist or win any of them, then probably the material is not ready. And I think yes, that's Yes, I agree on. with that. Yeah. Yeah, and that I think if you have the resources to spread yourself out that thin, That's you're, true. you're setting yourself up to best win with right. that feedback because you're right. looking for a commonality. That's um, true. You're looking for, you know, if 10 people call you and ask, they said, they say, get yourself a saddle. You know, it's just, you're looking for strength in numbers. That's yeah. what, if you're open to that feedback, you should put yourself out there as be as exposed as you can tactically to get back something you can use. Right. And just because you don't, win or place high enough doesn't mean that script should be discarded. It might be an iterative process. Sure. You can get actionable notes or ways to improve that script. Absolutely. Because execution does matter in these contests. You know, there is a way in which you can improve it, especially if it's a strong idea and you believe in that idea, then that's what screenwriting is. Scripts aren't written, they're rewritten. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I do think starting out with a really strong idea or within a genre or a story that hasn't been told before, like something true story plucked from the public domain or something that feels very relevant, you know, within the, the, the topicality of the stories that are being told. I think you're setting yourself up better to win. If that's the kind of story that you're telling, um, execution still is going to be very important. Um, but you can maybe be buffered a little bit if the execution doesn't quite nail the landing if there's something really strong about the idea and for the most part, the design of the story, then you can work with that. But if it's something that is entirely execution dependent and it's not at a hundred percent, then you could still get passed on. That's true. Um, so I think, you know, working from strong ideas are still very important, especially if you're trying to sell spec material without elements involved. Right. It really, you know, like at the end of the day, how we talk about it in our elevator pitches are very important and how we excited we get people about the prospects of what that material could be in the market. When you were giving your, sharing your knowledge with the, the folks in Atlanta, uh, what did you end up leaving them? Like what is the, the germination or the culmination, I should say, of the wisdom you bequeathed to them? Well, the very fact that I, I've, I've just always so inspired by... Um, a collective of creative people that come together because they believe in themselves. So, you know, just having them realize that they already 
are an inspiration to what we do, which is to creating opportunities for us to possibly work with them and help get their stories out there. Um, so to just believe that they matter and that they're entering into a business that's doesn't have a lot of job security. It's almost exclusively independent contractors your whole career. Um, and if, if they're aware of that and that's what they want, then they're already heroes in my book. And then it's about just making sure that they're doing their due diligence to stand out, to develop their craft. Some of the things that we've talked about on this podcast that they can be doing um, so that, that their originality and their freshness, their distinctiveness and the quality of their work has the best chance to shine. Um, and um, yeah, so like that's kind of like the, maybe the, the loudest battle cry that I, I, I had from the end of it and a lot of the other stuff was just getting into some of the specifics of what their needs were. Great. Well, as always, I appreciate it, Scott. You're, You're welcome. Um, be sure to follow Scott on Twitter. It's at SGCAR, two R's, 82. Um, and if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thank you again, Scott. It's always a pleasure. Rock on. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it. And thank you all for listening. Have a good one.